Welcome to Where Brains Meet Beauty, hosted by Jody Katz, founder and creative director of Base Beauty Creative Agency. Hey, everybody. It's Jody Katz, the host of Where Brains Meet Beauty podcast. Thanks for tuning in today. This week's episode features my friend, Elise Joy. She is the executive director of Girls Helping Girls, period, which is a nonprofit organization she started with her daughter several years ago. And if you missed last week's episode, it featured Dr. Gregory Brown. He's the founder of Revive Skincare. I hope you enjoy the shows. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Where Brains Meet Beauty. I am so excited to be sitting across from Elise Joy. She is the mother of the founders of Girls Helping Girls, period, which is an organization that Base Beauty and Where Brains Meets Beauty loves supporting. Welcome to our show. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. So I called your title the mother of, but you do a lot of things, <laughs> but I want to honor the girls. I appreciate that. I am, in fact, the executive director now, but <laughs> but please, by all means, my daughters are fantastic, so I'm thrilled to honor them as well. So um, you came in the room and you said you're pissed off at something that <laughs> happened in Florida, so I want to hear about it. Let's start there. Yeah. Sure. Um, I was reading this morning that there is legislation pending in Florida. It's been proposed in Florida to require products, pads, tampons be available in school bathrooms, which on the face of it sounds fantastic, except in the legislation, um, there's a line that says the product's uh, the the monies can be gotten through grants or through community groups like mine. And I feel so strongly that the school board, if if we want these, if the legislature recognizes that products should be available in schools, you can't recognize the problem and say that we need to do this, but then not take on the responsibility for paying for it. Schools shouldn't have to turn around and go find grants or find groups like mine. And in fact, I have made it um, part of just our mandate that we don't donate to schools who won't also fund it themselves. We'll help you pick up the gap. It's a lot, you know, sometimes it can be costly, but it's really not that costly. And can you imagine if we had legislation that said toilet paper is required in the school bathrooms? Everybody bring your own or go find a grant to pay for the toilet paper. We would never do that. And I just think you've got to put your money where your mouth is. If you recognize it's an issue to the point where you're going to propose legislation, then put the couple hundred thousand dollars behind it in the school districts across your state. It's really not a huge uh, amount of money and solve the problem. So as executive director, tell us what Girls Helping Girls period is. Well, it started out just as a project that my daughters and I were doing to help a local food pantry. We just started collecting products to donate to the food pantry because we had heard that these products are not covered by SNAP. We were horrified by that, and we started doing a little bit of research in our town and found that, in fact, in our own school district, which is middle income, high, there were very high income people there. There were people in our own school district who were leaving school, missing school, not coming to school because they didn't have the products they needed, and we thought that was crazy. We did this one project. It was so well-received. Uh, that we asked some friends to do similar kinds of things. And within a couple of months, we had 50,000 products in our house. It was overrun with products. It smelled very fresh in my living room for a long time. Uh, and after we gave away all those products, we just said, we can't not keep doing this. It made such a difference to the people we helped because we gave the products not one at a time, but we did our best guess at what a year's supply was. And the families we gave them to were so touched. It just took a huge problem off their plate for a whole year. Um, in time, we just kept collecting. In time, we collected enough 
money and enough products that we felt like we needed to create a nonprofit and girls, Helping Girls Period was born. Uh, we give away maybe half of our products in the still in the one-year supply. A lot of our clients now are in shelters. They are in elementary schools. We have students as young as we have a second-grade client now, a um, couple of third-grade clients. Uh, we give away a lot in schools, but we just feel like with the younger students, we don't want to give them a year supply of product and ask them to manage it on their own. We don't know how involved their families are. Uh, so we work with um, many school districts to give away products in the way they feel works best for their students. We work with um, two universities and they're through their food pantries, many other community food pantries and social services agency agencies. And since 2015, we've given away about 600,000 products. Wow. And how old were the girls when you started working on this project? Uh, so Emma is 19 now and in college. So she was about 14. And Quinn is 16, a junior in high school. So she was 11. Um, yeah, and it was really remarkable, actually, uh, because it was pre-menstruation for <laughs> one of those girls, sorry, uh, and she still was all in. She understood the issue. She felt really strongly about it, and we found that at her middle school, so did, uh, the students and the staff, but one of the greatest things was the number of boys who supported her when we started doing this. They were all in. We had a logo made for ourselves, and uh, a friend gave us that as a gift, and we had stickers made, and the boys took the stickers and put them on their skateboards, and we just thought that was the coolest thing because there is such a want for education from everyone, those who are without, those who have but don't realize that there are so many people in every community across the United States who are in need of our help, the boys who are not getting the education that they need to support all of the population, the men who visit the food pantries where we go, who, when we offer products, um, I work with translators at these food pantries, and so we can talk in their language about whether they have someone in their home who would benefit from feminine hygiene products, and they kind of sometimes look at me with a blank stare, and when I open the bag and I show them what it is, still a blank stare. And these are grown men who have families. Um, there's just a lot of education that needs to be done. So um, we're happy to be working on that. So I love um, the notion of this in its simplest form because as a woman who gets a period, I know that um, the best thing I can do is be prepared, right? Yeah. Because uh, if you're not prepared, you know what those days look like. Yep. Um, and it's not pretty. And what you're doing is you're giving somebody not just the tools they need, but the confidence to know that they'll be prepared. That's right. right? Yes. Um, because... I don't know why we walk around or, I mean, this is the way I used to and I'm st trying to stop doing it, like hiding my tampon or hiding my pad as I'm going to the bathroom. Like, I'm a woman. I get a period. Like, there's this is not like, like a big surprise, right? Yeah. So, like, I love the fact that you're empowering women and giving them more control over how they deal with, you know, life. Yeah. No one hides the toilet paper when they go buy that at the grocery store. Right. And I am finding now that with my daughter's uh, and with their friends, they don't do what we used to do. We all had the trick of, like, you know, <laughs> stuff on the tampon up our sleeve, right? And how many times did the tampon actually fell out because you st got stopped in the hallway and you forgot it was there, and then you went to walk, and you're like, oh, that's mine. Uh, they're much more open, um, which is really fantastic. There's recent study that came out that said with each generation, something like 84% of generation, what's the last one, Z, are comfortable talking about it, talking about sexual reproduction, and they feel that it is important that men be included in the discussion as well. Um, 
the millennial, I'm trying to think of the generations, millennials, it was something like 75%. And, you know, I, I go back a little bit farther than that. We were not talking about this. We were all hiding this in school. We wouldn't talk about it with maybe with a boyfriend or maybe with my dad. I didn't have a problem asking my dad to go get products. But now it's just it's very much out in the open in some communities, not everywhere. It's definitely, I think, a, a cultural thing. But I think the more we talk about it, the more just kind of numb and that's not a bad thing like we're numb about talking about toilet paper who cares it's just you do it you get it right shouldn't be a big deal right we see dancing bears on tv commercials yes yeah and those dancing bears tackle a really sensitive subject in a goofy cartoon way um i'm not sure i necessarily need to see that on television with tampons and pads but certainly we can't we shouldn't have to worry about saying oh i've got to go to the store and get them and anybody should care right so um i want to just um let people in on the fact that I know you personally, yeah. right? So I'm in your community. We mm-hmm. see each other around. So um, I'm super happy to bring this story um, to the podcast because I love the work that you're doing with your Thank daughters. You. And I think it's so important. And not only are you helping people with um, filling an essential need, but you're also reducing the stigma around these things that we're talking about, which is like, these are our human bodies. This is the way they work. Right. Um, and we should feel free and open about them. And thank you. You've been a supporter from the very beginning when you first heard, we were just starting when you approached us and offered to mentor the girls in marketing. And you were so helpful and so inspirational. You know, it's like, Um, One of the girls was babysitting the other day, and she was the big girl with the little girl, and, you know, she was like a rock star. And I think the girls were like, this is somebody who who lives in the world of marketing, and you were so generous with your time and and helping them at the beginning. It gave them a lot of confidence. So, And your company has been so supportive of us. We appreciate it very much. Well, I want to talk about you now, if that's okay. Okay. (laughs) Because you've had a really interesting career, um, and you probably would not have known that it would lead to executive director of— Definitely not. Some period. So um, take me back to the newsroom. Yeah. Um, I had every intention of being a veterinarian. That did not work. But I do have the cutest cockapoo ever. That's my attachment to that. Um, yeah, I had a really fantastic um, experience in school where I had two really influential professors who pushed me in a direction, one in particular, who pushed me in the direction of learning public speaking Um, He encouraged me to get an internship, and then he helped me apply to journalism school, which was something that was never in the cards for me. I hadn't even thought about television news. It had not occurred to me. Um, I got into a really great school. I went, got a master's degree at the University of Missouri Broadcast Journalism Program and started out anchoring and reporting. What market were you in? Um, I was in Syracuse. Um, I I was in Columbia, Missouri, where the school was, and I worked for KBIA Radio, uh, an NPR affiliate, and KOMU, the NBC affiliate there. And uh, shout out to my people in uh, mid-Missouri. And then I went to Syracuse as a producer, but I was able to fill in a little bit anchoring reporting when they needed, which is what where my heart really was. I wanted to do investigative reporting. Um, I was really into law, um, criminal justice, um, but... Very quickly, I saw that I was actually a good producer. I think others saw that as well. I was an I was a perfectly fine anchor reporter, but I was a good producer. I had the ability to hear twelve things at once and do forty things at once and be listening while talking and doing those kinds of things. Um, I did well there. I had a fantastic mentor uh, in the executive producer at that station in Syracuse, and I went to New York two and a half years in, looking for an associate producer job in New York, wanting to get to New York. And I spent an entire day at WNBC interviewing for an AP job. And by the end of the day, they had offered me uh, editorial director of the 6 o'clock news and producer of the 6 o'clock news. How old were you at this time? Uh, 
I was in my late 20, 27, maybe, 27. Um, I was younger by decades, the person I was taking over from. And it was a really difficult learning experience for me. Um, Wait, when they offered you the job, were you like, Oh, my yeah. God. Actually, no. Um, my mother will probably laugh to this day. I said, oh, thank you so much. I'd love to think about it. I went home. I called my mom, and she said, are you crazy? Like, they just offered you so much more than what you were making. That, what is wrong with you? And I was like, well, I can't call them now. It's like 8 o'clock at night. She said, you track them down. I'm like, okay, cooler head. So in the morning, I accepted the job. Um, I had, while I was in town, I had also interviewed at what was going to be MSNBC, Um and hadn't heard back from them. And in the meantime, took this job at WNBC where I was for two years. Um, I worked with Sue Simmons and Chuck Scarborough and Al Roker and had a fantastic time. I loved it. I Wait, worked, did you say 6 o'clock news? Six, I did the 6 o'clock news for a year. And then I did the 5 o'clock news, which was an hour, which was actually sort of a promotion because it was a longer newscast. I did that for an hour. Uh, and then I hooked back up with the person I had interviewed with at MSNBC, he came a-calling and said, we could really use a senior producer over here in the morning. What do you think? And um, and I went over there, and I started uh, going, getting up at 1 o'clock in the morning because I had to be in by about 3. My staff came in at 5. We were on the air at 6. Um, that was a long two-year slog, but maybe some of the best time in my career. I was free to do uh, all like all the breaking news. The Today Show was on, and then MSNBC when it launched was kind of the a little bit deeper dive on the on what the Today Show was doing, but live guests and things were crashing and burning, and you know, and all the things that were happening. And I was responsible for six hours of live programming. It was chaos every day. Wait, so this is the time period where we we started to see the breaking news banner at the bottom of the screen. Very, very, very beginning of that, yeah. And at the time, it was all new. We were making it up every day. Um, our new, the guy who, our editorial director, constantly ran into the control room to go, uh, let's try this. I mean, literally, uh, take their jackets off. I think it would be more casual if their jackets were off. Okay, now loosen his tie. Now we're going to stand on stools. Now we're going to stand. We were making every day. It was something crazy, but we were very aware that we were figuring it out on the air, and it was this brave new world, and it was exhausting because no one ever sleep slept because even though the regular news cycle when you're doing a six o'clock news never stops, it does. It does stop. You're on the air for like a couple of hours a day in the morning, maybe a noon newscast and a six o'clock and an 11. This was 24-7 and we were all trying to figure it out. We all had come from local news and we were all trying to figure it out. So even when I got up at 1. I was there at 3. I was off the air at 12. I planned until about 5. I went home, watched nightly news at 6.30. I had a call with the assignment desk at like 7, and then I crashed at 8, but I had to be back up at midnight. So it was crazy. Did you have kids at this time? I didn't. I didn't. I did it for the first two years before I had Emma. I actually almost had Emma at MSNBC because I was like a 100 months pregnant on the in the control room at MSNBC. And I remember everybody saying, please go on maternity leave. You're making us very nervous. Um, but the doctor said, no, you're fine. Go work. You'll, you're, you'll fine. You'll get to the hospital. And I did. And it worked out fine. Um, but when I came back from having uh, maternity leave, I decided that schedule was not conducive to breastfeeding and sleeping and surviving. And they were just launching a long-form group at MSNBC and they were fantastic filmmakers associated with this group, but they 
didn't necessarily have the right team to get them on the air quickly. So filmmakers like to have six months or a year or two to put their one hour together. And I was used to coming in at 9 o'clock, and if, God forbid, a plane drops out of the sky, you get something on the air immediately. So I worked with them to crash um, and did that kind of stuff and did special projects for the first two years or so that I was there, maybe the first year I was there. Um, September 11th changed everyone's world, including the world of 24-hour news. We went to all live news, all just all about all, everything that was happening in our world and the long-form programming that we were doing, which covered everything from terrorism to cosmetic surgery. I mean, we were all over the place. Um, all of that stopped, and we went back to being live. Um, I actually, for uh, probably six months, I guess, I ran the graphic depart- graphics department because um, they just needed another editorial voice in the graphics department because, sadly, so much graphic stuff was coming through the newsroom. Um, eventually, um, that group was reformed it, very small. It had been a very, very large team, and there were two of us who stayed of, I think there were almost 80 people. There were two of us who didn't lose our jobs, sadly, because the other people were, they just did different things. They were long-form filmmakers, and that was not the mission anymore. Um, so we did some live specials. We did some really big specials with all the big NBC anchors. We did two-hour specials that were live on cutting-edge cutting edge medical technology, um, digital technology. And in fact, Jeff Bezos, before Amazon, when Amazon was just starting to sell books, what came in was a guest on our show where he talked about like, I have a vision for a different kind of Amazon. And we were like, yeah, 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 whatever. It's so funny. I just told my kids the other day, I'm like, guys, did you know when Amazon started, they just sold books? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> books, what are those? Um, yeah. So we did some big shows. We did... Um, talked about Wall Street and investing, and then we settled back into doing long-form programming, more documentary programming, some theatrical releases, and I helped launch um, a development group at MSNBC and became the director of development while also executive producing some of the programs. And one of the assignments that I was given was to see if I could get anywhere with a show that had been started, I think there were 10 or 11 episodes before September 11th of a show called Lockup. It was a prison documentary series that was one-offs and in different correctional facilities. They just said, you know, see what ha- see if, see what you can get. Um, and I ended up doing 250 episodes. Oh, my gosh. Four spinoffs. We traveled to, um, I don't actually remember anymore how many countries, but we were in 55 maybe different facilities in the United States and um, state facilities and local jails. Um, and that's really, while I did um, some amazing theatrical releases as well, some bigger films that I love and am really proud of, the fact of the matter is I helped develop those, but there were fantastic filmmakers attached to those. Lockup really became my baby, um, along with a fantastic team, um, and I'd name them, but you all, I, they all know who they are, and I'm going to leave someone out and feel terrible. Um, and it, it, while at the beginning I feel like it might have been um, entertainment for some people, and I think all the way through it might have been entertainment for some people. It's a bit voyeuristic. I recognize that. Um, I have a background in journalism that I'm very proud of. I have a background in criminal justice. I'm really proud of having studied that at journalism school, um, and my undergrad is in government Um And I worked with a team of journalists. We had a fantastic team at NBC and Standards and Legal that made sure every show was, like, completely buttoned up and was something we could really be proud of journalistically. Um, And I say that only relative to to a lot of the other shows out there that were more entertainment. Um, 
I don't think you'd watch one episode of Lockup and say, oh my gosh, this is the paragon of journalism. But I do think that in 250 episodes, we were able to shed a spotlight on um, the warehousing of young black men, on the lack of mental health resources for so many people who end up in jails, which are not the facil- right facilities for them, and um, and especially in juvenile justice. We did a bunch of specials on juvenile justice and went to some maximum security juvenile facilities. And so I'm really proud of, um, of the spotlight we were able to shed on those issues over the long haul. So um, let's go back to your time working like 24 hours a day. Um, <laughs> yes. I mean, 25. Were, it was 25, <laughs> Jody. You were um, yeah, early in your career, but did you know in that time that this was insane and you couldn't do this for a really long time? Or were you like, this is great? No, I thought this was great. I think produce, television producers, particularly 24-hour news producers, we have some genetic mutation that mm-hmm. allows us to like never sleep. It's very... Um, uh, it, I am not a surgeon nor am I a rocket scientist, but I imagine in both of those fields, you have to just be able to just keep going and going and going. And there's definitely some mutation to, to news producers who just kind of never get tired. There's always another story. There's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a rush. Right. Um, but I got to a point when I moved over to long form, I got to a point where I looked back and had many opportunities to move to other networks and or even at my own where I didn't want to go back um, because I didn't really love the direction it was going in. I don't, I really don't like it today. It upsets me greatly. I feel like we are, um, I don't think I'm, <laughs> I don't think I'm shedding any light that we don't get along so well in our country today. And I think that those things are encouraged on television news. I think now we've got a right-leaning news and we've got a left-leaning news. And I think at the time, there was just objective news, which is what I wanted to do. And we encouraged um, our guests to argue with each other. But it became it was respectful for a while, but then it became literally what we called food fights. And that became really distasteful to me. And I... Um, it was great TV. I understand why people say, oh, it's great TV. These are businesses as well. Uh, but you reap what you sow. And I think we're kind of there now. And I, 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 I'm sad for where, I'm really sad for where it is. So many journalists are doing amazing, amazing work today. I'm so proud of the field that I went into, you know, on, in all media. Um, there are so many talented producers and anchors and writers at NBC and MSNBC. I am very proud to call them my friends to this day. But the medium itself has become this thing that I feel like kind of got away from us. Or you go into a meeting and you just forget to look at the world around you and what's becoming. Um, and and so I think that's where we are. So um, I'm happy to be doing a lot of work that's more community service-based, including Girls Helping Girls, period. I volunteer places. Um, I just recently, this summer, actually got a certificate in college advising for underserved communities, um, and I'm hoping to help anyone who needs that kind of help. Um, so I guess maybe it's my way of, like, assuaging some of the guilt. I've always been a good community servant, I'd like to think. So, um, but... Um, there's there's so much great work to be done. We're just living in a really difficult time. I, I, I my friends who are in that new, newsroom are working really, really, really hard. So, how did you make the decision to pivot from the news world? It was made for me. <laughs> um, I was laid off uh, about four years ago, um, in a very 
uh, I literally, uh, five seconds before it happened, I had absolutely no idea it was happening. I was very much blindsided. I was working on a million different projects, and my layoff affected a lot of people. It affected that lockup group, all of whom they lost their jobs as a result. I mean, they may be still working for the production companies they were working for, but um, that show uh, eventually went away. It's on in reruns still. Um, And eventually, unfortunately, that department... um, shrunk too. It's a there's just there are a few people, few amazing souls still working in that uh, department. We keep in really good touch. Um, is that the first time you were laid off? It was the first time, which is really unusual. I had worked for like 22 years. I don't know anyone in television news who hasn't been laid off many times. I was really super lucky. Uh, I'm very aware of that. Um, do you remember what the person said to you? I do. Uh, we're going in another direction. Your services are no longer needed. Yeah, I think about it every single day because it was so cold and so harsh. And I had spent 19 years at NBC and had literally almost given birth on the floor twice. Um, it was a hard way to handle me. You can hear it in my mm-hmm. voice. Um, but I fully recognized it was the voice of one person and the person, that person, the people that person worked for, and absolutely not the voice of my team, who were really devastated. I, I, I you know, a couple of them left. Um, we still have, like, plans where we are all going to somehow, we get to back together all the time. We have a couple of reunions a year. They've all come out to my house a million times. Um, I would love to work with a couple of them, and I'm, and, and I'm working on some plans with two of them. Um but yeah, it was devastating. What, uh, what was the most painful part about it? Was it the surprise? Was it like... The surprise was really awful because, you know, this is somebody I'd worked for for a very, very long time who I had supported through a lot of change in their life um, and had worked tirelessly to allow them space to deal with some personal stuff. Uh, that was not the way... That was just not a really humane way to deal with it. So the surprise was really terrible um, I think the hardest part has been, and I'm, I'm doing fine now, uh, the hardest part was just that, um, I don't know, I, I don't know that I ever dreamed of how I would retire or the retirement party I would have or the whatever, but it made it so that I, um, I was told I could leave that moment, but I said I have like literally two teams in prisons right now. I'm not leaving them. Like, that's crazy. And I had a team of people who were working with me in New York, um, they allowed me to stay as long as I felt I needed to stay to hand over everything, which was very kind. I appreciated that. I spent another month, but I, can't, I spent another month coming in every day having to face this person who wouldn't look at me, which was cowardly. Um, and I feel bad. Like, in the end, they were like, let's throw you a party. I'm like, this is not party worthy. I just need to quietly go away. And I just never got to say goodbye. Um, that was horrible. That That is like... You know, I think managers really need to think about the fact that we've worked so hard. Just a nice goodbye, a hug would have been nice. I didn't, you know, I this person got up and walked out of the room. It was just like, are you like, are you kidding me? I've been in your office where you've cried. I've been in your office where I've cried. We've gone through like deaths and births and marriages and divorces. This is crazy. It was a, it was crazy, crazy way to handle me. But it when you it just be, was all very legal and sterile. And um, have have you seen this person since? No. Mm-hmm. no. It's 
So, Probably best. I really, I've, in all these years, I can't formulate what I would do. I, I can't. I can't even. So can I suggest something? Sure. Um, because I've been laid off like a, a lot of times, probably too many to count and fired and whatnot. Um, and um, I've also had to lay off people, which really sucks. Yeah, I've and there's been on like, that side too. There's no like great way to do it. Um, so you are amazing, and I'm sure you're incredibly talented at producing many different types of things. This person was probably as uncomfortable as you were, um, and she's human, and we we are not perfect, right? So um, it might be that this was maybe even more painful mm-hmm. on her side. Yeah, I, I, I can't imagine it was easy. Um, I can't imagine it was easy. But a card afterward or a phone call. Yeah, but you know what? Like, we're not perfect, right? So, like, she might actually, in five years, send you a note, right? It might take her that long. So it may take her longer. Um, But I feel like if, um, as kind of silly as it sounds, if if we can have compassion for the people on the other side of these conversations, it makes it a little less painful. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And in all the other work that I do, you're really right. I think the reason that um, my daughters are have founded this organization that's so fantastic and working on similar issues in their own schools now um, is because we all as a family recognize that you have to have compassion for everybody around you and um, and they're really great about at doing that. So I, I see it. I see your point. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I, I've had a lot of really interesting, very intimate conversations like this on the podcast before, and I just try to borrow everything I've learned in 12 years of therapy and (laughs) two years of business coaching and, like, all the other people around me who've helped me. And um, when I just, like, stop and, like, pray for people who frustrate me, like, you know, pray to whatever God you're into, universe, the force, whatever, like, you know, the force, please um, let the goodness in this person grow, it takes, like, the edge off of me. Yeah. Um, or if I can just be compassionate um, for, like, oh, okay, the train's late. Well, what about, like, having compassion for, like, all the people who work for New Jersey Transit oh, whose, yeah. like, jobs yeah. are not easier because they have trains full of people. So I, I try really hard to um, let go some of my pain by um, feeling compassion for the people around me. You're so good. <laughs> I try, You're you know, because so I yeah. want to, like, I want to smile through the day. Absolutely. Absolutely. And actually, it's why I have, um, I really have, put that behind me and um, have been able to grow Girls Helping Girls, period, while Emma's gone off to college and Quinn is now junior in high school and, you know, drowning in her own junior in high school thing. Um, I'm thrilled that I've had the opportunity to now work full-time. I I don't do it full-time, but I'm now the full-time executive director and have been able to really grow um, what we do and work with so many more partners because I've had the time to do it. And I'm really, at age 51, looking at my life in an entirely different way than I did at 45. Um, like, I think about the commute. Like, I don't actually want to spend three hours. Sorry, mm-hmm. but I don't want to. I know you have to. I don't want to spend three hours well, of my I day choose on to. a train. Exactly. Right? I yeah. choose to. And yeah. I, don't, I choose not to do it every day also. Yeah. Um, I have chosen the people I like to interact with, the types of things that I like to do. We're starting to think about, like, you know, where might we live if not in our community now after our kids are gone? Do we want to stay? Do we want to go? And what kind of life do we want to build for ourselves that doesn't have to be 25 hours, eight days a week? Um, and I didn't have the opportunity to step out of that at all when I was working. I um, At all. I had, I, 
I had a great perspective, but I had no perspective on my own personal life at all. Uh, and I've really had time to think and put some things in order, um, which including taking that class this summer and getting certified in college advising wasn't something I would have ever had time to do. Uh, and I loved doing that. So I think that when you're in a career where people are so ambitious, like you're surrounded by such ambitious people all the time, um, it's really hard to see beyond that, right? Absolutely. Like, and that's how, um, when I was, at working at advertising agencies. I was surrounded by, like, super ambitious advertising people. And, like, I had to play along because this is my cohort, even though I'm like, I really don't care who just won the whatever business. Like, it really didn't matter to me, but you just sort of get pushed along in this train, right? Mm -hmm. And you really have to, like, put your feet down, put your hands on and say, stop, I want to, like, see what else is around here. Yeah. And sometimes the universe does it for us. Yeah. Right? Sometimes we don't get to choose. Um, but, you know, it's it's so interesting to me as you talk about your your past, the things you studied, the things you worked on early in your career, like what you're doing right now is so linked to everything that you've mm -hmm. done. You know, yeah. Everything through Girls Helping Girls, period, is really just an extension of all that work. It is. It is. There's um, I'm getting to do a lot of actual, like, sort of design work in a way, marketing. I'm writing a lot. Um, I'm dealing with legislation a little bit just from afar. Um, we have people on our board who are dealing with that. But, yeah, I, I've really taken everything that I've learned in journalism and applying to this, uh, applying it to this and— um, it's it's a great it's a great outlet, and you produce every day. <laughs> like you're yes, a producer. I do. Yes, <laughs> yes, I do. Much to my family's chagrin, because that is the first thing my husband and my children yell back at me, like, "Oh my God, can you stop producing everything?" And I'm like, "I, I literally can't do it. I I produce every day of our lives, um, and that's one of those things that I'm trying to focus on now. Is just like take a breath, so you don't get there on time, so it doesn't all look perfect, and it turns out it's just fine. It's just fine, and it's actually sometimes a lot nicer. Um, yeah, perfectionism is a tricky thing. We could spend hours on that one. So my last question for you before we wrap up, what um, what are your goals for Girls Helping Girls, period? What what does the future look like for the organization? Um, well, I would re I'm in the process of working with several um, school districts in and around where we live, the Newark School District being the largest, most significant of all of them. Uh, we worked with them last year, trying to get something, some more in place with them. Our commitment really is to anybody who's in need. We have started working with people across the country from various issues, but uh, I would, I'm really focusing. Happy to help far away, but really want to feel like we made an, a dent where we are. Um, and so I'm hoping in the next couple of years, the Newark school system can send everyone who needs a backpack home for the summer so that they don't have to freak out that they're not in school being able to get pads. Or there's enough of a supply in everyone's home over the weekend that coming to school Monday is not a question. Um, the logistics of doing that with 100 and probably 30 or 40 schools in the area in, the, in our county is tricky. We have learned every school does things their own way, so we're trying to figure that out. But I'd like to have that in place. Um, and I would really like to uh, continue to support. We haven't talked about the sales tax on the products, um, but I would like to continue um, helping and working with the people who are working to, to end that sales tax in the 35 states where it still exists because it's just a reminder to people every day that you know, things aren't equal. It's just a few pennies, but it's just inequitable. And um, that's something I, I, that we're focusing on as well. So our listeners are individuals, but they're also people who have um, a seat at the table at big corporations. So how can individuals or corporations help? Well, 
a couple of things. If you're an individual and you've got, say, $100 to spend, uh, it's very easy to go on any of the online warehouse uh, stores. We really like Boxed. They've been fantastic partners of, of ours, and they do not tax, regardless of where you live, they will not tax um, menstrual products, which we think is fantastic. With $100, you could you could buy enough pads and liners to put in little maybe sandwich bags with a note inside, um, maybe 10 of each, 10 pads, 10 liners. You could make 50 bags um, and offer them to a school in your area that might need and send them home on the holiday break with people who need to take them home over the holiday break because some of us take it for granted, but that 10 days is really fraught for some families. Um, that $100 also could can support actually probably four or five people if you're buying it in bulk for a whole year. Um, if you're a corporation, uh, it, I don't, it doesn't matter if your employees are of means or not. The product should be everywhere. There are ways of managing them. There are machines that allow you to not take more than one at a time. We just need to say in our culture that taking care of yourself yeah, you, if you need to go to the bathroom and you need toilet paper, fine. You need these other products, fine. And then you can get back to work, and that doesn't have to be a uh, something that that takes you away from what you're doing. And it it's a it's just a very subtle signal that we respect who you are. Um, on a much larger scale, um, we would lo we'd love partnering with corporations to get products in places that they feel are important. Um, we've had some amazing corporate partners and have done some really fantastic work. Uh, we participated in the back-to-school um, period, uh, poverty-free period with Always, and were able to help, um, you know, hundreds of students. We wouldn't normally have been able to help because Always helped us do that. Um, we're always looking for partners, and they don't have to only be feminine hygiene, you know, menstrual product partners. We can partner with any kind of business that wants to make an impact, which is something we've done with yours as well. Well, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and story with us today. Thank you, Jody. I really appreciate your um, giving people, women, a voice in this kind of way and for recognizing my daughters who mean the, the world to me. And I know they mean a lot to you, too. Thank yeah. you. And we did try to get your daughters on the show. We just had a <laughs> little scheduling problem over the summer. Yeah, school. So. You know, school. <laughs> now they're back in school. Um, and thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this show, please follow us on Instagram at Where Brains Meets Beauty Podcast and subscribe to us on iTunes. Thanks, Elise. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Where Brains Meet Beauty with Jody Katz. Tune in again for more authentic conversations with beauty leaders.